Uh, this morning we'll be uh, hearing from Jeremiah chapter 29. Pastor Bill will be preaching this uh, sermon titled, What Do We Do in Babylon? These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners and who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill you to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. We are continuing a series this morning on Sunday that where we're asking the question, how do we, as people of faith, live among people who don't necessarily share our faith? It's a series that has come from our study of the book of Daniel that we are supplementing this morning with this chapter from the prophet Jeremiah. Here's why. When you read through the book of Daniel, you come across stories that are larger than life. Stories like we've already seen, like God fattening young men up when they eat vegetables so that they don't defile themselves. Or telling the king's dream to one of them so that the king won't kill Daniel and his friends. Or like stories that we will see. God protecting his people from a fiery death in a furnace, writing warnings on a wall with his finger, keeping hungry lions from eating Daniel, or the visions that he sends to Daniel and these angelic messengers that he sends to interpret the visions. You read through these accounts and you start to feel like, okay, I guess this is what the Christian life is supposed to be like. It's a series of one significant event after another in which the clash of worldviews is very obvious, the stakes are really high, literally life and death, and the inbreaking supernatural presence of God is very clear. You read all of that and then you look at your own life and you think, wow, um, 
my life doesn't feel anything like that. It, it feels pretty ordinary. I mean, frankly, sh shouldn't it be a little bit more, I don't know, interesting, exciting? It doesn't feel like it lines up with what I see in Scripture. M maybe I'm doing something wrong. Now, part of that feeling is because in some sense, what we have in the book of Daniel is the highlight reel. We did the math a few weeks ago, realized that Daniel spent almost 70 years serving in the Babylonian courts, from which we have what? We have six stories and four visions. In other words, we're not told what most of Daniel's life actually looked like. And so it can start to feel a little more exciting, a little more fast-paced than it actually was, which makes our own lives look a little more dull in comparison. It's a little bit like what happens if you spend too much time on social media. People post pictures of themselves, then their friends, they're having a great time, they're sharing cool things together, they're off on a fantastic trip somewhere, or they share important news that they just got, or something that they're feeling really intensely about, something that rises up above the ordinariness of life. But since that's all that you see of everyone else's life, you get used to it. You start to think, well, that's, that's what normal is, which makes you think that your own life is less exciting, less fun, less emotionally charged by comparison. Now, is your life really less? Probably not. But it starts to feel that way when you look at all these other pictures and posts. It's easy to start to feel that way when you read through the book of Daniel or other parts of scripture. And that's when you need to remember that the vast amount of scripture is focused not on these great big events, but on small mundane details of everyday life. The details that often escape our notice. But scripture is intensely interested in things like how to talk to each other, spends a lot of time on that, or how to get up and go to work, how to eat and drink, what kinds of feelings you ought to have toward other people, how to have sex, how to greet each other. These small things are where you actually live the life of faith. These are how you live out the life of faith. And these are the things that tend to get overlooked when you feel like your life is not as interesting as Daniel's. Now here's a very important distinction. The book of Daniel is telling you what mindset you need to have, what worldview you have to develop, how you have to see the world as you go about living here. And so it's telling you, here's what to expect from the world. Here's what to expect from God as you live in this world. Here's how to live here without compromising. It's giving you a mindset, a worldview of how to interpret your life, of how to make decisions as you live your life. But it's not actually telling you what to do day to day as you live your life. It's not laying out specific activities for you. And that can be frustrating for some of us starts to feel a little too theoretical. So we're going to pause our study in Daniel this morning to ask the question, okay, what am I supposed to do now with this mindset, this approach to life? What am I supposed to fill my days with? And that's where Jeremiah 29 comes in. It's written, verse 1, to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, which was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother had departed from Jerusalem. Now, a little bit of history here. Israel went into captivity like uh, God promised they would, but it happened under several deportations. Nebuchadnezzar brought Daniel to Babylon when Jehoiakim was king of Jerusalem. 
Jehoiakim reigned for about 11 years and he was succeeded by his son Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin if you, is actually a variant on Jeconiah. Different, same, name, same person, different name. Jehoiachin only reigned three months before he was deported. And that's when this letter from Jeremiah comes. So it's roughly about 10 years or so after Daniel had already been in Babylon. Written to a sizable number of God's people in Babylon who are asking the question, now that we're living here, what exactly are we supposed to be doing? The reason for that question is because false prophets had been telling them, don't get comfortable there. Don't get too invested because very soon Babylon's power will be destroyed and you'll be set free. In Jeremiah 28, just one chapter earlier from where we are today, Hananiah had put a number on how long they would be there. He said in two years, God would bring back all the temple treasures along with King Jehoiachin and the rest of the exiles. Sounded very promising, but the Lord had not sent him caused many people to trust in something that wasn't true. So the Lord promised he was going to remove Hananiah from the face of the earth. Two months later, Hananiah died. But there's still this uh, understanding that very soon we're going to be leaving Babylon. And so Jeremiah writes this letter, chapter 29, that says, actually, you're going to be there 70 years for several generations Get used to being there. God sent you there. You turned away from him. You rejected his offer of friendship. You refused to obey him, but he has not abandoned you, even in Babylon. He has things for you to do while you're there. If you want to summarize those two things, those things into two categories. One, you are to settle in and thrive where God has put you. And then secondly, you are to strive for shalom. Now, we'll talk a little bit later about what shalom means, but you're to strive for shalom among the people where you live. Those are the same two things that God has given to you and to me as we live where he sent us. We are to settle into our communities, and we are to strive for those communities to experience shalom. Let's look at them one at a time. So first today, we are to settle in and thrive. Notice the first three things that God tells the Israelites to do, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters, and he tells them then to marry off their children, so that, verse 6, you may multiply there and not decrease. This is an important part of what it means to live a godly spiritual life. Build, plant, and multiply. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce and multiply your family. If you, do these, if, if you understand these things from the way that God is putting them out there, this is what spiritual life looks like. It's not if you allow your society to define them for you. Then they're not very spiritual they're not very godly because in our world, building houses is all about what? It's about comfort. It's about prestige. It's about how big your house is, how modern it is, how good a neighborhood you're located in. Planting a garden so that you can eat, working so that you can eat, from our world's perspective, is all about wealth and security. It's about how much you can make with how little effort you're putting in. 
how you can enjoy the maximum amount that this world has to offer, how you can hedge against economic downturns. And multiplying, having a spouse, having children, is about intimacy. It's about loneliness. It's about surrounding yourself with people who like you and who you like. It's about having people to talk to and having people to do things with. That's how the world thinks about these things. That is not how God thinks about them. They sit within a different frame of reference when God talks about them. It's a frame of reference that goes all the way back to when he first made human beings in the book of Genesis. When God made Adam and Eve, he put them in a garden. He gave them a space in which to live. He told them to work the garden and to keep it, to coax it into being productive so that they could live off of it, and he told them to multiply. The same three things he said to Adam and Eve, our first parents, is what he says now to those who are in Babylon. Go and carve out a space for yourself to live in. Work to provide for yourself and multiply yourself. God has not changed his idea of what this world is supposed to be about. He's still working to see his original vision of the Garden of Eden come into being. He wants that garden, now this new Eden, this new creation, he wants that garden to spread across this world and to spread into places like Babylon. He wants to infect Babylon with the Garden of Eden, with the kingdom of God. And so he comes to the people that he sent to Babylon and he tells them, take the overall intention of the Garden of Eden and duplicate that now in the heart of Babylon, in the heart of enemy territory, as it were. He's telling them it's not only possible to create Eden under the best circumstances, in a pristine, unspoiled creation, but you can create Eden in the worst cir circumstances. And so his people are to build houses and live in them. They're to create small Edens set within a hostile world, places where people can meet with God and meet with each other, places of beauty that welcome others in, that draw them in, places that are engaging, where people want to be, places that let them share their lives with each other and share their lives with the Lord, places that shelter people from a world that tries to rip relationships apart. They are to build houses in Babylon with Edenic intentions. And they're to plant gardens and eat their produce. Gardens that bring out the abundance that God has built into this world in ways that are useful to human flourishing, in ways that line up with his purposes, in ways that provide for themselves so that they're not a burden on the people around them, but in ways that also allow them to provide for the people around them whether those people are part of their families or are outside of their families, ways that let them experience the joy of generosity, understanding that it really is better to give than to receive. They're to plant gardens, again, with Edenic intentions. And they're to multiply, to make others after their own kind, to view people as images of God, as precious, not as a nuisance, not as a burden, not as a drain on the public welfare, not as an obstacle to an otherwise fully realized carefree life, not as disposable, but as utterly unique, eternal beings who reflect the God who made them, persons who need to know the God who made them, who loves them enough to make them, 
who thinks that his world is missing without them. And so you realize here multiplying doesn't simply mean having. It means helping these new members of the community grow in every way possible, especially spiritually. It means making sure that from a time before they can remember, that they know that this is God's world, that they have heard of God, that they have a sense of how God thinks about this world, a a sense of how God thinks about them. It's no guarantee that when they grow up, they'll embrace this God who loves them. That is not in any parent's power to make happen. But it does mean that their parents are constantly reminding them of who God is. They're reminding their children of how God thinks, of what he feels for them, of what he wants from them. That is in a parent's power. They are to multiply after their own kind. Now, when you bring these three things together, building, planting, multiplying, it means that God's intention is that his people would leave this world better than when they first got there. That they are to produce as much Eden as they possibly can in the places where God puts them, even if that means in the city of Babylon. And this is not just for some people. It's for all of God's people. I have the privilege of talking to a young man, a college student for this past half year. He's a Christian, he has a very real faith. But he said to me a couple months ago, Okay, I'm living my life, I'm I'm going to school, I'm going to work, playing video games, hanging out with my friends, volunteering at church, but I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be doing here. I I mean, is this all there is? I said to him, yeah, we really don't help you very much in this country. We have taken away all of the markers of what it means to be an adult. We've done away with the coming-of-age events and and the accomplishments. And so you end up just sort of drifting through life. You're in school, it feels like forever. And you have this vague notion that at some point you'll be grown up, but there's no way to really tell when that happens. There's no idea of what you should be aiming at, and there's no way of knowing how actually to get there. And so he and I talked about these three things, buying a house, getting a job, getting married, the kinds of things that we're talking about this morning, but I framed them in a way that applies to a young single man who's still in college. So we talked about what does it mean to be responsible for occupying a space with Edenic intentions, a house, an apartment, a dorm room, and for making that space an environment that is good for those who live there and that welcomes other people into it. Now, young people, Do you know that this is also for you? High schoolers, middle schoolers, I'm talking to you right now. You have the opportunity, you have the responsibility to make your home a place where other people want to be. Your attitude in your home should welcome others into it. You should feel a sense of ownership for how it looks. You should help keep it clean so that it's inviting to other people. You should welcome the guests who come there. You should be involved in inviting people to come there with your parents' permission, obviously. In other words, this is not just for your parents. It's for you as well. Young man in college and I, we were then talking about what does it mean to take that next step to pursue a career. And we talked about how his work and his studies are for the purpose of better understanding the richness, the abundance of this world that God has built into it. And he needs to understand that so that he can understand how to use the goodness in this world 
in a way that does not exploit it, but that does harness it in order to make other people's lives better. He needs to approach his studies in ways of thinking about how can I take this that I'm learning to care well for other people? How can I use my studies well in order to get a job that allows me to have an income so that I can be generous to others? And then we talked about how multiplying after our own kind does mean having children, but it means a whole lot more than that. We talked about how the Apostle Paul, who was single, multiplied after his own kind. That countless numbers of people will now live eternally in the family of God because they came to know God in part through his efforts and that they grew in their faith because he discipled them. That's part of every one of our calling. It's part of your calling to throw yourself into the life of multiplying the family of God, both in inviting others in so that they have the opportunity to know God, but then also taking responsibility to help them grow up as children of God. And again, young people, this means you. You should not wait until you're older. These are the things that you can do now. There are younger people in this church, in this world, who don't know the things that you know, and you need to share with them what you know, maybe through, that, through children's ministry. Or you join a welcoming team or the praise team or you help us set up and tear down when we have a place to do that again. Don't wait to serve. This is part of multiplying. It's part of building Eden. Now, none of what I've said so far is flashy. None of this will make headlines. Very few people will notice. On the other hand, none of this is hard. It's good, though. It's a good life when you give yourself to it. It's purposeful. It's enjoyable. It benefits other people now. It benefits other people for eternity. It's a big part of what we do day to day as we live in Babylon. Outwardly, it looks pretty much like what other people are doing. Building houses, going to work, multiplying. But we do them for very different reasons. We do them to take a scent of Eden and breathe that into a rotting world. A scent of heaven. A scent that communicates something of God to a world that's turned its back on him. We breathe this into a world that desperately needs him. So point one, we settle in and thrive where God has planted us. Second, we strive for shalom among the people where we live. It's not enough that we care about ourselves and our families and the community of God. That's important. But we also care about this larger world. Verse seven, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. Now that word welfare is a translation of a Hebrew word that's really important. It's the Hebrew word shalom. It's a very important word. It's very difficult to translate into a single English word. And so sometimes you'll see it as welfare, peace, prosperity. Sometimes you'll see it as peace and prosperity. You have these different ways of rendering it because shalom is multidimensional. At its essence, it means that everything is right with the world. That most importantly, you are right with the God who made you. That there is no war between the two of you. That you're not in rebellion against him, rejecting him and his ways. That there's nothing in you that fuels his wrath against you. Nothing that comes between the two of you. Instead, between you and God, there is now this mutual positive feeling, mutual love. 
Shalom means you are right with God and that you are right within yourself. That you're not at war with yourself. That you're not undermining yourself, hating yourself, giving in to all kinds of addictions, lusts, harmful behaviors. Instead, you feel whole. Everything inside of you is working together harmoniously. Shalom means you're right with God, you're right internally, and you're right with the people around you. You're not tolerating each other, but you are actively pursuing what is best for each other. Shalom means that everything in the world is at peace. Not a ceasefire, an absence of hostilities, but there is this active coming together, working together with joy for a common good. There's harmony in the universe because literally everything is right within the universe. This is something that Israel understood that it needed as the people of God. And so Psalm 122, verse 6, urges us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. We cannot build Eden. We cannot build the kind of community that God has in mind without shalom, without being right with God, with each other, and then within ourselves. And so every part has to be right with its maker. Every part has to work correctly. Every part has to work correctly with every other part. Only then can we be the people of God. That's why we have to pray for this. But then when God plants us among the nations, he says something very surprising. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray for it. Seek the shalom of the people around you. Pray for them to have shalom, to be right with you and with each other, to be right with the God who made them. And he goes on to say, for in its welfare, in its shalom, you will find your shalom. What he's saying is you cannot have shalom if the people around you don't have shalom, which only makes sense, right? How can you be right with the world? How can you live harmoniously together with others and move positively toward the same goal with them? How can you be right with the world if the rest of the world is not right? If they're not moving in the same direction that you are. So he says, seek it. Seek shalom for your community. Invest yourself in your community to make it better than it is. To do things that bring the values of the kingdom of God into it that bring the rightness of the kingdom of God, that bring the resources of the kingdom of God into it. But don't forget, while you're doing that, that shalom requires all three elements of not only being right within ourselves and right with each other, but most importantly, being right with God. This world loves hearing the first two that we can be whole human beings and that we can develop good, respectful, just societies. Loves hearing that. But it thinks that that third element is optional. It says it's not necessary. It says you can become a whole person without addressing your relationship to God. You are an autonomous being that whether God exists or not doesn't really matter. You can still be whole within yourself. And therefore... It says, since you don't absolutely have to have God work in your life to be a whole human being, that can be true of society as well. That society can become whole without addressing the ways in which it has run from God. Or that on its own it has the power to create a good and just society. You cannot afford to let yourself 
believe that. You and I don't have the keys to our own hearts. On our own, we cannot control our own passions and our own desires. There are times when we know what is right to do, and we just cannot bring ourselves to do that. And there are also times where we do make ourselves do what is right. But we know deep inside we'd really rather be doing something else. That if we could get away with it, we would do that something else and that we would not do what is right. We cannot create a good society without the power of God because we cannot make ourselves love what is good and right. We can't do that without the power of God. It's only as we are set right with God that we have the power to overcome our own internal issues, our draw away from him, away from what is good. And since that's true of individuals, it's also true of society as well. It's only when a community is right with God that they have the access to the power to be right and good with each other. When they don't have that power, you will see it come out in the way that society treats each other. Now, this is a truth that's really easy to demonstrate. You can go and study history and you can see it down through the ages that people consistently act in ways that are not good towards the others that they live with. Or you can just see it reaffirmed every single day in your news feed. I want to ask you a question. Are people today honestly confused? Do they really think, genuinely think, that something like sexually preying on others is a good thing and that that's why they do it because they think this is a positive good for society you think <laughs> of course not then why is it still in your news feed every day we all know it's not okay it's never been okay why is racism after hundreds of years or to be fair millennia why is that still in your news feed on a daily basis are there no laws against racism? Do we not educate each other? Have we not had multiple social movements? Why is it still here? Why do we find things like hypocrisy in the news of people doing the opposite of what they tell other people to do? Why is violence significantly up in this past year? No one debates that any of those things are okay. But scan your newsfeed and you discover that good laws and good plans and good education about laws and plans do not have the power to change people. They lack the power to affect the thing inside of us that rejects shalom when it doesn't suit our own desires, when we think we can get away with it. Now I want you to make sure you're hearing me right now. Laws and plans and education are necessary to having a decent society. Martin Luther King pointed this out. He said, the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. He said, that's a good thing. That is what society can do. But that's not shalom. Restraining evil, keeping evil at bay, is not the same as producing good where good did not exist before. Keeping someone from acting on their hatred, their sexual lusts, their hypocrisy, that is good. That has to be done. That's something that the kingdoms of this world can and should be doing. But the kingdom of God has a greater good in mind. And that means as part of the kingdom of God, you also have to have that greater good in mind. The kingdom of God's goal is to turn haters, 
and predators and hypocrites into lovers and defenders without hypocrisy so that they have integrity. It aims for shalom, and for that you need a greater power than the nations have. For that, people need to be set right with God, and you cannot afford to forget that that is also your goal as you seek and pray for shalom for the people around you. You can help individuals wrestle with their internal demons, but you cannot pretend that you can make them whole without them being right with God. You can point them in the right direction. You cannot change their heart. You can help your community be a better place to live, but that means you're going to have to call them back to how God made the world. You're going to have to call them back to his plans and his purposes for people, back to his laws, to his ways of relating to others that he built into this world. You're going to have to call them back to what he intended in the Garden of Eden. And so part of making the world better means that you are calling your society, the people around you, you're calling them to something that they've already rejected. Do you hear the challenge? God is not putting you into Babylon and calling you to just fit in. He's calling you to get involved, involved with individuals, involved in your society, but to do so with his goals and his intentions in mind and to make his goals and his intentions clear to the people around you. He's calling you to have a greater goal than just making friends with people, a greater goal than just having them like you. He's calling you to bring all the aspects of Eden and Shalom into a world that would really just prefer to hear, we can all get along even if we ignore God and his claims on us. That is not Shalom. And you can't sign on to it. You have to call individuals and your society to be reconciled to God. It's a calling that many of God's people have refused. It's a calling that I struggle with just being personal here. I had an opportunity a couple weeks ago to share with a college fellowship, and it was one of those moments where in the middle of what I was saying, somebody interrupted me, and and immediately everything inside of me just froze. They weren't long. Frankly, it was over Zoom, so I don't even know what they said. But in that moment, I could feel myself withdrawing. I could feel myself pulling back, thinking, okay, here's the pushback possible from this world. And in that moment, I do not want to enter into it. I don't want to seek shalom for others, even with this tiny little bit of cost. I just want to be a million miles away in that moment. I'm not just talking to you this morning. I'm talking to me. I need this as much as any of us. Now here's the crazy thing. We saw last week that only God's kingdom lasts, that in the end everything counter to his agenda just blows away like dust. God is giving his people in Babylon an opportunity not to be dust. To not only see what he's doing, but to be involved in doing it. He's giving them the chance to create a community of people that one day will grow until it's the only community left. It will fill the whole earth. But remember who these people are. They're exiles in Babylon. God sent them there. They have a good work to do now. But the reason that they're there is because they refused to do that good work when they were living in Jerusalem. They're just like you and me. They are people who rejected God's vision of life. They rejected Eden. They rejected Shalom. They didn't want it for themselves or for anyone else while they lived in Jerusalem. They wanted a different life, one that they defined as good. They said to themselves, God's parameters are, 
are too rigid. His rules are too restrictive. They're not nuanced enough for us. We can adjust them a little bit and everything will work out just fine. They rejected the life that God would have given them and they discovered, no, you can't adjust perfect goodness and have everything be just fine. When you do that, you break everything, including a relationship with God. And so here they are in Babylon reaping what they've sown. And here's God again offering them another chance in Babylon to get on board with him has not changed his plan for this world, has not changed his plans for how he'll bring about that world, still wants to bring that through his people, even when his people have ignored it, when they've gotten caught up in other things. And he spells out how committed he is to his people and to his plans in verse 11. He says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, shalom, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. He's saying, I have not given up on you. I still have plans for you. I have good plans for you. Plans that you're going to love. Plans that will give you a future and a hope. Plans for shalom. He goes on, verse 12, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. He keeps on going, but I don't want you to miss the connection here. Think about that promise again. He just said, verse 12, that they will seek him. Verse 13, that they will find him. What is that? That's shalom, right? They will be right with him. They will want him. They'll have a heart that wants him. They'll seek him, and there will be nothing in them that pushes them away from him or him away from them. Nothing to keep them apart. They won't just seek, they will find him. He promises they're going to be right with him. He's promising shalom. But why is that? Is it because that they are so good at fixing everything that they screwed up while they were living in Jerusalem? Realize no. They have to call upon him, they have to seek him, but why are they going to want to do that when they didn't want to do that before? What's going to be different? The difference is that he has plans for them. Plans to give them a future and a hope. Do you see the connection here? He plans for what? He plans for them to call upon him, to seek him, to want him, so that they can find him. Here's how good God is. Recovering Eden and Shalom do not depend on you manufacturing some kind of desire inside of yourself that you don't have. Recovering them depends on him first putting in you a desire to seek him, to look for him. He's not holding himself back to see if you have any interest in him. Instead, he's coming to you and putting a desire inside of you. And then because that desire is really there, and it, it's a legitimate, honest desire for him inside of you, you will call on him. You will seek him. He plans for you to find him. That's the good hope. That's the good future. He plans for you to find him, and he does everything necessary so that you can find him. This God wants to be found. He wants to be found more than you want to look for him. And so he provides the shalom for you that you haven't wanted. He reconciles you first 
to himself. Reconciles you to his person, to his ideas, to his values, to his plans. He reconciles you first to himself before telling you to do anything else. That's what Jesus did in his death and resurrection. He reconciled his people to God. He reconciled you to God if you trust him to do that for you. He took away the reasons for God to be angry with you, your sin that kept you from being right with God, your hatred of God, and he gave you his love for God. He put you right with God and he put part of him inside of you to transform you at your core. He came down to the enemy city of your heart that wanted nothing to do with Eden and Shalom and he put a person of faith there just like he planted the exiles in the center of Babylon. Only he didn't plant a former Eden rejecter in you. He planted himself, a person who knew what Eden was all about, who had always wanted Eden, who loved Eden, who worked for Eden, someone who knew what Shalom was about, who longed to bring others into that experience as well, and who had the power to do so. He planted himself in your heart to give you a taste of Shalom of knowing that nothing stands between you and the Father, that there is nothing between you and God that keeps him from smiling at you, wanting you, embracing you. He gave you a taste of knowing that you're now able to reach back out to him because there is now something inside of you that does bubble up and says, man, I want that. I want him. It might be small. might not always be as strong as you want it to be. But because that desire comes from him, even if it's small, it's real. And you can act on it. So this morning, if you have the slightest inclination toward him, take heart. You may have rejected what he loves. You may have had no interest in building Eden or wanting true shalom for the people around you. Those things may have seemed dull to you, uninteresting, You may have thought they were too hard to work for, that they would cost you too much. You may have been afraid of what other people would think if you you invited them to be reconciled to God. All of that may be true. But if you're even slightly drawn to God this morning, take heart. Because he has better plans for you than you've ever had for yourself. That desire inside of you did not originate with you. It comes from him. And it's an evidence that says he's invaded your heart. That he has started something there, a new life, a new creation, a new Eden, his kingdom, shalom. And because he started that inside of you, it's going to keep growing because its growth depends on him and not on you. Seek him then. Let yourself be surprised that you find him. And then give yourself to loving the people that he puts in front of you. That's what the normal Christian life looks like as we live here among the nations. Let's pray. Lord God, bring your plans into being. Lord, let today be that day for all of us. Lord, for those who don't know you, for those who do. Lord, that we would be impassioned to believe that you actually would respond to us. That if we come to you right now, this afternoon, tonight, that you will let us find you and that having found you, we'll discover that we could have nothing better than you. Lord, do that, please, for the sake of your people, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.